I want to thank Jim Fan too for preaching last week. That was a very good message that he shared. I uh, was uh, gone enjoying some time with our family uh, over the Christmas break, which was really nice. We had everybody home, and so I took some time off and uh, listened to Jim's message online. And uh, I want to encourage you uh, to do that. If you are ever gone on a Sunday morning, go to our website. You can listen to the messages and stay in touch with the series that we are doing each week. And today we're going to continue in our study of Colossians, looking at verses 11 to 15. I'd like to read it for us, but I'm going to start at verse 9, just so we hear it in context. Paul writes, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture that speaks so powerfully of the cross of Jesus Christ and what you accomplished there. Lord, it's a good way for us to begin our year thinking about these things that are so central to the gospel, to our faith, to our confidence in Christ and all that you have done for us. Give us ears to hear what you want to say to us this morning. Amen. You know, when I was preparing this message this week, I was thinking about how uh, this could very easily be an Easter message. You know, we're talking about the cross today and everything that happened there. And uh, it is indeed a good way to begin the year for us to focus our thoughts again on Jesus and all that he has accomplished for us. I want to begin with an analogy and then move into the text. When you look at our country, especially at this time of year, uh, you would draw the conclusion that America is a nation that's in love with its sports. I think about on any given day you can turn on the television and you can find something to watch that's sports related. Uh, Right now, you know, it's hockey and it's basketball and it's football. Lots of football. I think there's been a bowl game on every night of the week and probably still going to continue until the national championship. And then if you're an NFL fan, there's the playoffs. And then the Super Bowl is coming up. And after that, in February, we'll have the Olympics. There's always something you can watch that's related to sports. And I know that not everyone enjoys sports, but many do. And many love it. And Why is that? Well, maybe we like the competition or we like seeing, you know, excellence and skills that are displayed in those sports. But I think one of the main reasons why we enjoy sports is that we identify with a team. I mean, if you know a Packer fan like Pastor Jason, you know that he really loves the Packers and he identifies with them. 
And if you are a Vikings fan, then you enjoy the Vikings or you identify with them both in their struggles and in their successes. Because when we identify with a team, their victory becomes our victory. Their triumph is our triumph. There's something we can learn from that spiritually. Because that identification with someone else is even more true when it comes to Jesus Christ. It is even more true when it comes to Christ. The Bible says that when we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we are united with Him in His death and resurrection. In Romans chapter 6, for example, in verses 3 and 4, it says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? And we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's what it means to be in Christ. It means that we are identified with him so closely that his victory is our victory. And just as he triumphed over sin and death, so shall all who believe in him. And that's what this passage is about. Paul is writing about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us and about our unity with him in this victory. So this morning we're going to be looking at this passage and asking the question, what did God do for us at the cross? What did Christ accomplish for us when he died on the cross? The first thing that Paul tells us is that God made us alive in Christ at the cross. God made us alive with him. When we were dead in our sins, God made us alive in Christ. When you look at verse, 13, excuse me, verse 11, it says that in him we were also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision that was done by Christ. And he connects it to our baptism, having been buried with him in baptism, and raised with him through our faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. You know, if you were to ask the Jewish people at that time what they thought was the sign of their relationship with God, they would have said circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant. And the Jewish believer thought that if they were part of that covenant, they were in. They were accepted with God. That was the mark of the covenant. But circumcision was powerless to change the heart. And that's why Paul or the other prophets in the Old Testament would talk about how we were to circumcise our hearts and not our flesh. It's not the cutting off of flesh that changes anything. It is our heart that needs to be changed. That's where the sin is. That's where the problem is that's in us. And so Paul comes along and he says that when Christ died on the cross, one of the things that he accomplished there was the putting to death of our old sinful nature. He describes it as being circumcised, as being cut off. Not by the hands of men, but in a circumcision that's done by Christ. We died at the cross. And our old nature was put to death when we placed our faith in Him. And what he goes on to say in verse 13 is that when we were dead in our sins, 
powerless to change ourselves, and we were in that state, in the uncircumcision of our sinful nature, God made us alive with Christ. God took the initiative and chose to do that on our behalf. The basic problem of mankind is sin. We know that. It's behind all of the wars, all of the evil, all of the conflict and strife, all of the hatred and prejudice, all of the terrorism and crime in our world. What lies at the root of it is our sin. And what we also have to acknowledge is that that line between good and evil runs right through the heart of all of us. All of us are capable of great evil. All of us are capable of sin and evil deeds in our life. And we know that. We see that. It's our self-centeredness and it's our pride that alienates us from God and separates us from one another. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 6, the scripture says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Bible is saying that this problem is in all of us. This problem of sin. And it shows up in different ways. I mean, there are people who really, you know, get angry at God and shake their fist at him and want nothing to do with him. And then there are those who are simply indifferent. They're just following the course of this world. They're just kind of going along from one thing to the next, walking away from God. You know, on the farm where I grew up, we didn't raise sheep, so I don't have a lot of experience with sheep to say much about that, but we did have some cattle. And there were times when a cow would make its way outside of the fence and would get lost, if you will. Now, how does that happen? Well, it's interesting about cattle is they're not malicious in wanting to do that. You know, they're not trying to find their way out there intentionally. It just sort of happens. They start nibbling inside the fence on one tuft of grass, and then they might look up and they see another tuft of grass that looks good, and they'll walk over to that, and they'll get it, and they'll start chewing along. And then pretty soon they get next to the fence, and then they start looking outside the fence, and the grass may look greener on the other side of that fence. And if there's an opening or if there's a way that they can kind of push themselves through, they do that. And then they see another tuft of grass, and they go a little farther and a little farther and a little farther. And pretty soon that cow can find itself lost. You know, I think that's what many people do in their relationship with God. They just kind of follow the flow of this world or how life comes to them. They kind of make their way along trying to follow one thing, whether it's pleasure or whether it's trying to be successful or making a lot of money or trying to do the things they think are right. And they keep kind of walking farther and farther and farther away from God until one day God speaks to them and they realize their lostness and their need for him it takes God to do that we don't come to him on our own we would kind of keep going our own way unless God intervened and the way he intervenes is often by bringing a friend into our life or just the right person at the right time in our circumstances to get our attention and show us our need for a savior we're like sheep we're like cattle who have wandered away from him and need to return home 
And that problem in man runs deep. We sin because we are sinners from birth. We are born that way. We are all born spiritually dead and powerless to save ourselves. We could no more save ourselves than a dead person can raise himself from the grave. God must do it. And he did it through Christ. God made us alive in Christ when we placed our faith in his Son. And we were born again by the Spirit of God. And what Paul writes about in this passage is that baptism is a picture of what happened when we placed our faith in his Son. It's a picture of our union with Christ and his death and resurrection. And that's why we as a church practice what we call believer baptism, where we invite those of you who have placed your faith in Christ as your Savior and Lord to be baptized as a sign of that. And when we are baptized in the water and we go under the water, it pictures our union with Christ and His death. And when we come up out of the water, it pictures our union with Christ and His resurrection. And when we walk out of that pool or that tank where we are baptized, we are indicating our commitment to walk with Christ and live a new life. That's what Paul is talking about here. Secondly, he tells us that at the cross of Christ, God forgave us all of our sins. How did he do that? How could God forgive us all of our sins and still be just? For sin demands a punishment, and the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. And we were all guilty, and so how could God forgive us all of our sins? He chose to put those sins upon Christ. And he canceled our debt by nailing them to the cross of Jesus. Now to understand what Paul is writing about here, we need to go back to the time in which he lived. And look at the practice of a Roman court of law. If you were living at that time as a citizen of Rome or a slave under Rome, it was assumed that everyone owed perfect allegiance to Rome and to the emperor. Caesar was like God. Caesar was Lord. That's what you were to confess or say. And you were to give him your perfect allegiance. And any violation of a Roman law was swiftly punished. And if you were guilty of several things where you had broken the law, there would be an itemized list that would be written out against you. A list that detailed the crimes that you had committed and what the punishment was. And if you were thrown in prison, that certificate of debt, that written code that was against you, would be nailed to that prison door. And anyone who walked by could see the crimes that you had committed and that you were being justly condemned. What's interesting is that at the time Paul wrote this, he was in prison in Rome, we believe, under house arrest. Paul probably had that kind of certificate of debt of charges that were being made against him for things that he had done. The Bible says that every one of us has a certificate of debt that's written against us. It's a record of all of our sins. And it shows how we have failed to keep God's law, the written code. Think about that. 
You know, when I think about this passage and this record of our sins, you know, I think of, uh, we just recently again watched the Christmas Carol over Christmas, and you think of Jacob Marley who comes to visit his business partner, Ebenezer Scrooge. And he comes and he bears this weight of his sin that's pictured there as these chains that he has forged in life. Ebenezer can't see the chains that he has forged but they are there. The record, the weight of his sin. And that's what Paul is saying is there for all of us. And how did we accumulate all of these things? What is it that happened in our life? Well, just take, for example, some of the commandments that God had given to us in the Ten Commandments. In the first commandment, it says that we shall have no other gods before him. Have you ever put anything else ahead of God in your life? Have you ever put something else in first place in your life? Maybe it was sports. It became an idol to you. Maybe it was money. Maybe it's your work, your job. Maybe it's entertainment or things that you enjoy. Maybe it's a relationship. And when you're honest about it, you weren't putting God first. But you were putting something else in the place of God in your life. And we are guilty. You could take... Another commandment that calls us to not misuse God's name or to take it in vain. Have you ever misused God's name? Have you ever used His name for no purpose? Have you ever used it and profaned God's name in some way? Then we are guilty. We are guilty. What about honoring and keeping the Sabbath? Do we put God first in our time? Do we give Him the first place? Do we give Him the first day of our week? Do we give Him, in a sense, that first hour of our day? Or we put Him first in our life and in our thoughts and we honor Him? Do we give Him the first fruits of everything that we make? Do we give Him that tithe or that offering that He deserves? If we don't, we are guilty. Guilty as charged. How about the commandment, you shall not commit murder? You know, some would say, okay, I'm okay on that. I've never killed anyone. Maybe just thought about it once or twice, but I've never actually done it. You know, and you tend to think, okay, that's all right. And Jesus comes along and he says that if we've ever been angry at our brother or sister, it's in the same line. Have you ever called someone a fool or an idiot? You ever badmouth someone and put them down we are guilty how about the commandment to not commit adultery maybe we've never had an affair we would say but have we ever looked at someone with lust in our heart what about premarital sex what about homosexual sex what about those relationships that are outside the bounds of marriage that are not according to his word If we've ever engaged in any of that or you can throw in pornography or that kind of sexually stimulating material if you've been looking at that, we are guilty. And there is this record of our sins. Martin Luther experienced the reality of this truth in a dream. One night he had a dream and Satan came to him. And Satan brought this record of his life and it was written like a journal in Luther's own hand. And he came to Luther and he said, is it true that you did these things? 
It's true. It's true. And he wrote out the list and scroll after scroll after scroll was open, the record of his life. And Satan, the accuser, was there and beating him down and beating him down until Luther felt in the lowest depths of misery. I am a sinner deserving of God's punishment. And then suddenly the reformer turned to the tempter and he remembered the words of Jesus and he replied to him and he said to Satan, he said, it is true. Every word of it is true. But right across it all, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, has cleansed me from all sin. Do you remember the Good Friday service we had a few years ago? We've done this a couple times. Where you can see our cross here. And if you look at the cross closely, there are a lot of nail marks in that cross. Scars are still there, if you will. We had a service in which we handed everybody a slip of paper in the bulletin. And on that slip of paper, it was symbolic of our sins. Everything that we had ever done. And we took those slips of paper and we wrote across them, paid in full. The words that Jesus cried out on the cross when He said, it is finished. That's what He was saying. It is accomplished. The debt has been paid. And we laid that cross here at the front and we came to it. And we took those pieces of paper that now had Jesus written across them and that it was paid in full. And we came and we nailed those to the cross. We were doing what God had said here happened literally at the cross. That Jesus took our sin and He forgave them all having canceled the written code with its regulations that stood against us by nailing it to the cross. Curtis Vaughn describes it in this way. He said, we were debtors and we could not pay what we owed God's law had a valid claim on us and the promissory note was signed by our own hands. And Jesus took the note and He not only paid the debt, He destroyed the document on which it was written. And sin no longer has any claim on those who are in Christ. That's grace. That's grace. That is marvelous good news. To know that our sins, not in part, but the whole, have been forgiven by Jesus Christ. God has forgiven us all of our sins in Christ our Savior. And thirdly, Paul writes that God has triumphed over all of our enemies at the cross. He disarmed the powers and the authorities who stood against us. That's what it says in verse 15. And who are these powers and authorities? Well, they could be earthly rulers, but it is more likely that Paul is referring to those supernatural powers of the fallen angels, the demons, Satan himself who opposes us and who accuses us. And what did Christ do at the cross? It says that He disarmed them. Christ stripped them of their power and their weapons, just like a conquering king does with a defeated army. And although they still harass and discourage and try to defeat us, they ultimately will not prevail. 
because of what Christ has done for us. We are in Christ, and he is our defender and our protector. And it says in verse 15 that when Christ conquered over all of his foes, he not only disarmed them, but he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Once again, Paul is calling to mind an image that comes right out of Rome and a practice that they would have there. That whenever a Roman general returned from battle in which he had won a victory, there would be a parade held in his honor in the city of Rome. Plutarch wrote about the Roman general, Aemilius Paulus, when he returned from capturing Macedonia and he came as his conquering hero. The parade that they held in his honor lasted three days. There were great wooden scaffolds that were built all along the route so that people could stand and see this conquering hero coming back with the spoils of war. On the first day, there were 259 chariots that carried statues and pictures and colossal images that had been captured from the enemy. On the second day, there were innumerable wagons that carried the armor of the Macedonians and the Thracians. There were swords and spears and shields and bucklers and helmets and quivers of arrows. And then it was followed by 3,000 servants who carried the enemy's silver and other treasures. And on the third day came the captives. They were preceded by 120 oxen that were going to be sacrificed. Their horns were gilded with gold. Their heads were adorned with garland. And next came the Macedonian gold and the conquered king's chariot, his crown, his armor. And then came the defeated king's servants, the captives, prisoners of war, defeated and humiliated. They came in chains paraded before the crowd. God made a public spectacle of all of our foes when Christ triumphed over them at the cross. In that Roman parade, the very last scene you would see was a victorious general seated on his chariot, robed in purple, adorned and dressed in this robe, holding a laurel branch in his right hand, the symbol of victory. That is what Christ has done for us. Christ is our conquering king, and he triumphed over them by the cross. And what Satan thought would be his greatest victory turned out to be the means of his ultimate defeat. And when we find ourselves and we place our faith in Jesus Christ, his victory is our victory because we are identified with him. What should our response be to Christ? What should our response be to this conquering king? Well, if you are here today and you have never received him as your Savior, it's the very first response of our heart should be to surrender our life to him. Jesus died that we might have life. He paid the penalty for our sins. He has defeated our foes. He has given us new freedom in Christ. But we must receive that gift by personal invitation in order for it to be our own. And for all who do know Him as our Savior, it is a call to worship Him, 
and to follow Him as our Lord and to give Him our very best. And again, we stand here at the beginning of a new year and what a great time to commit ourselves once again to Christ and to pledge our allegiance to Him and to follow Him wherever He may lead in the year ahead. Paul writes that all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. He is God in human flesh. And Christ, that one who is divine, dwells in you and in me. And because He is in us, He is everything that we need. We don't need to turn to false philosophies or to other gods or other religions. We come to Christ as the one who is our all in all. Everything that we need. Let's pray. Father, how can we ever thank You for all that You have done for us? You took the initiative. You saw our need. You saw that we were deserving of punishment. And yet You chose to send Your Son to be our Savior. Jesus, thank You. Today we come before You and we give to You our hearts. And we pledge our allegiance to You as our conquering King. And I pray that in this year ahead we would walk closely with You. We grow in our relationship with You as our Savior and Lord and that we would serve You fully to the best of our ability. We pray this in Your name. Amen.